Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Probably no more singular presence in the commentariat today on our politics than Ana Navarro, who you see frequently on CNN, read frequently on Twitter, a leading never-Trumper in the Republican Party. She also has an incredible story that began in Nicaragua. I sat down with Ana a couple of days ago at the Institute of Politics, and here's that conversation. Ana Navarro, everybody knows you. First of all, welcome. Welcome to here and welcome to the Institute of Politics. Yeah, I thought for sure there was going to be something resembling fall weather in Chicago and it's No, and but it's you know, Miami. you always say to me, you will come to Chicago only <laughs> in the fall and the sp- spring, but not in the summer or winter. And uh, we, uh, we provided warm weather for you because I know as a Floridian, you would not be happy no, if you got come. seasonal I, weather here. I, I simply would not come yeah. in the winter. I think that it, there was some contractual arrangement mm-hmm. to provide an 80-degree day for you <laughs> in the middle of October. So, um, But you know, people see a lot of you and they hear a lot from you and you've uh, become sort of one of the really most um, watched never-Trumper voices out there within the Republican Party. But people don't really know that much about your history and, and your background. So uh, I just want to ask you a little bit about that, about your family. In, you were born in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. your family Nicaraguan. And uh, uh, tell me about your, your mom and your dad. Well, my mom and dad, I grew up in a small town in Nicaragua. It's called Chinandega, mainly agricultural. Near Honduras. Near the border with Honduras. Have you been there? No, because you've never invited me. <laughs> well, it's a little rough there in the, at the yeah, moment. Yes, I know. Uh, the dictator has decided to be a dictator again. Yes. And, um, you know, we there was a revolution. There was a Sandinista revolution. There was a, First, there was a right-wing dictator uh, who lasted decades, his family, and then there was a revolution. We ended up fleeing uh, to Miami, my mom. Before and before we, we, we should back up, but you, your, your grandfather was murdered in Nicaragua. Was that a politically uh, motivated thing? It wasn't. My my grandfather was a landowner, a large landowner, and there was, you know, he got uh, he got robbed and he got shot during the robbing as he was going down a, I guess, a dirt path at that moment in time uh, in his car to pay the, uh, to do the weekly payments of the of the workers, and he got robbed, and he got uh, he got shot, and, and he died. And your mom was that. what twenty then? He, she was younger than that mm-hmm. even, and uh, it was something that was life changing. And you know, look, Nicaragua is this is a beautiful country, incredible natural resources. Uh, it's got Pacific Ocean and Atlantic Ocean. It's got greenery. It's got so many natural resources, but it suffered from political and natural disasters when it's not a 
earthquake, it's a dictatorship. When it's not a dictatorship, it's a hurricane. When it's a, not a hurricane, it's a left-wing revolution and dictatorship. And so it's had uh, very difficult decades. My entire lifetime, there's been some sort of political strife going on in the country. And your father was active in the Contras fighting the... My father was. My father never quite moved to Miami for the longest time. So initially, it was just my mom and my siblings in Miami. My dad stayed behind trying to hold on to the properties and playing G.I. Joe. He ended up in the mountains uh, of Costa Rica uh, and as part of the revolutionaries, as part of the anti-revolutionaries, as part of the Contras which is people ask me often these days why I'm a Republican and why I'm still a Republican. And, you know, you've got to remember, and look, I know there's a lot of people that have a lot Trump of— I think Trump is one of those people who asked that question. Well, I could ask him the same, uh, the same <laughs> question. I think I could answer it better than he was. Here's what I'd tell him. Well, you've got a, a pretty compelling answer well, here. David, I was a Republican when uh, Trump was a Democrat. And yeah, I was a Republican well, when Trump was an independent— ago. That wasn't that long right. ago. And I'm a Republican now while well, he's just pretending to be one. But um, so, look, um, you know, I've always heard about the 1960s and how John F. Kennedy, there were every, every Irish family and every Latin family had a picture of John F. Kennedy on their mantle. And that's how it was if in the Cuban-American community, in the Nicaraguan community. With Reagan. With Reagan because of the Cold War, because uh, he stood up against communism. And that, you know, that meant something to us. I um, settled in Miami, and I grew up in Miami, and it's also part of the reason why I'm Republican. I went to a community where the Congress people, where the governors, where the senators were standing up for us and representing us and embracing us, and we were part of that big tent. People like Lincoln Diaz-Balart and Ileana Ross Layton, the first Hispanic congresswoman ever elected to Congress, who's retiring this right. year after serving 28 years. People like um, Jeb Bush, he's you know he's not Hispanic, but he's close enough. People like Mel Martinez and Connie Mack, and you know it was just a completely it was a it was a place where you felt um, represented, well represented within the Republican Party, particularly on these issues of foreign policy on these issues anti-communism of anti-communism and um but then you know then as as things evolved also on issues like immigration it was jeb bush uh it was um connie mack senator connie mack back then who helped pass the nicaraguan adjustment central american relief act giving uh visas giving residencies giving green cards to hundreds of thousands of nicaraguans you, you and central americans that. i did and so it was a you know it was a different time. It was a different time in Florida, certainly. It was a different time in the country, and it was a different time in the Republican Party. Let me, let me I, I don't, I'm not going to lose the thread of your story, but I do want to ask you this, because I wondered about it when I was reading about you. Uh, how you process what's going on at the border now and the refugee uh, issue. We've now cut back on uh, the accepting mm-hmm. of refugees to uh, you know, historically low levels. We've seen what's happened at the border with the separation of families and so on. Um, You're an advocate for refugees, and you understand what it's like to be uh, driven from your country. When you ask me how I process it, it it always goes back. And I think that's how most people, and I think it's human nature, process things. It always goes back to my personal 
experience. And for me, this was a firsthand experience. For many Americans, uh, they've heard stories of their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents coming here and what they experienced. Look, I came here at the age of eight. My mom and dad made the decision and took the action of bringing me here. They had resources. They had U.S. visas. They paid plane tickets. They, they could put me in a private school and keep me here legal through a student visa. But I know, for, I know in my heart that if none of that had been true, if they had been desperately poor, they would have still tried every possible way to get me out of a communist dictatorship where I would have been indoctrinated and bring me to freedom, whether that would have been the United States or Costa Rica or Honduras, I don't know. But I know they would have tried to raise me in safety and in freedom. And so um, I, I, you know, when I look at these Dream Act kids in particular, which just breaks my heart, I, I think of myself. I do. I keep thinking, you know, but for the fact that my parents had all these resources and all, you know, and the wherewithal and the ability, I could have been a Dream Act kid too. You know, but for the but I would tell you that but for the legal papers, I am a dream act kid. I'm an eight year old who was brought here by her parents through no fault or decision of her own and grew up to love this country and accept this country and embrace this country as my own. Uh, you know, I am as American as anybody else. And so I think that's how most of the dream act kids feel, except that, you know, I've got a U.S. passport, a naturalization certificate. They don't. Yeah. Well, I, uh, uh, I've said this many times here, people who listen to this podcast regularly know that I'm the son of an immigrant as well, who came over in the early 1920s, fleeing persecution in uh, Eastern Europe. And a couple of years after he got here, they, they slammed down very draconian anti-immigration strictures in Congress. He wouldn't have been allowed in this country, but for arriving a couple of years before that, and uh, probably would have uh, been killed, uh, or certainly would have lived a, a different life than he lived. And I, I think he was a great contributor to the country. And uh, uh, you know, so this is the story of America. And I, you know, I think what what you just said about a great contributor to the country. I think um, I feel a, a duty and a burden to contribute. And I have no patience for those who come to America, uh, you know, where there's so, ma- so much opportunity, where um, there's so many things to take advantage of and to be uh, feel blessed and fortunate about and then commit crimes. Because oftentimes when you talk about immigration, People want to paint this as an either all or nothing. Either you're open borders or you are build the wall. Yeah. No, it's, it's a hell of a lot more complicated and nuanced uh, than that. And, you know, I, I don't know anybody who is truly an immigration uh, reform, comprehensive immigration reform advocate who doesn't agree that people who come here and commit heinous crimes should be punished right. to the full extent of Absolutely. the law. And deported as right. soon as they serve their right. sentences. It's also worth noting, though, that that is not, I mean, the, the impression that this is who the, in the main these people are who are coming to this country is, is, is terribly unfair and misleading. That's one fact of the fact is the right. incidence of crime among these immigrants is lower than the general population. Most Significantly people, lower. Most people come here to work and build a better life for their families. And yes, they should come legally and... Uh, 
uh, and we ought to, we have to have enforcement at the border and so on. We also ought to, ought to have some, uh, it seems to me, humanity for those people who are fleeing, fleeing gang violence and fleeing dictatorships and fleeing, uh, you know, enduring uh, these unbelievable risks in order to try and have a better life. For so now kids. I'm going to turn this around on you. You were there. I remember. Um you know, the 2008 election, the promise that then-candidate Obama made to pass immigration reform in the first year, he passed health care reform. Um, what, what, what went into that choice, and, you know, what was the deliberative process of trying to do it, not to do it? What, what was it like behind the scenes? Well, you know, when you're in the White House and you're conf- and dealing with Congress, um, you hear a lot about the sort of pipeline of legislation and how much that pipeline can contain. Uh, we uh, we tested it to the max in 2008 and two, 2009, 2010, in part because of the things we had to ask uh, for in order to deal with the financial crisis uh, to start with. Um, but the you know the I think there was a sense that we could go back and get um, and get immigration reform done, what was very clear was that um, there, wasn't, um, there wasn't enormous enthusiasm from the leaders to take that on along with the other things that we had taken on. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately it did pass through the Senate, never got a vote in the House. Right. The DREAM Act uh, got 55 votes, I think, in the Senate, uh, needed 60 um, so no, it's a deep, it's a deep regret. I've, you know, it's, I've, um, goes back to this thing about how everything in life is about timing. I've had conversations with, uh, former president George W. Bush and with Karl Rove where they talk about, um, the regret of not having done uh, immigration reform and that, you know, because they chose to do social security reform right. and got, so badly hosed at it, you know, and so many Republicans at that point uh, decided to turn on him and, and abandon him. That's where he really became the lame duck. There was no more political capital yeah. to do something as controversial as immigration reform. They, you know, they they sometimes, I think, ask themselves, had we done it in reverse yeah, order? Yeah, I, mean, I was with Carl the other day, and he spoke about the decision to move forward on that. He, um, look, I think they deserve credit for you know, they brought a different sensibility than the one we see today about the need for immigration reform. And had they done it, I think uh, it would have redounded to their benefit and the benefit of the Republican and Party that's one in the of long my, run. My, um, that's one of my issues and my, you know, one of my first issues with Trump. He um, he lost me at, hello. well, no, it wasn't hello. He lost me at Mexicans are rapists and criminals, and there's some good people too. Right. I, you know, for a, I'm not Mexican, but I realized that, um, you know, that we're all in this together. And that when people think of immigrants, they mostly think of people that come south of the border who sound like me and look like me and have names like me and hair right. color like mine. And it it pisses me off to know. And mostly work their asses off when they get here. Right. The pick, pick the grapes and, you know, uh, raise there, the poultry and the and get and the there dairy. Is no, there isn't a hotel in no. this uh, city, a restaurant in the city. 
Uh, and there are also the surgeons yeah. and the teachers yeah, and the cops. Absolutely. And there's some of them who are buried in Arlington. Well, look at these uh, these Dream Act kids. Right. They're splendid kids. I mean, I've spent time with them. You've spent time with them. Uh, they have but the demonization promise. of the demonization the us versus them the demonization of immigrants, I think, is one of these fabricated culture wars that Trump feeds, and it, it's really affecting the, the country. When you see, you know, when you see um, a Puerto Rican woman, and she's not that's not even an immigrant, get accosted and screamed at in Chicago for wearing a shirt with a Puerto Rican flag, or when you see, um, you know, two women in Manhattan, out of all places, get screamed at and harassed and verbally abused because they happen to be speaking Spanish. I pity the fool that goes to Miami. Yeah. I grew up in Manhattan. It's not unusual for people to get screamed at and verbally <laughs> abused there, but not for that. Not for that. Um, so uh, what we, we've had, we agree on this, obviously, uh, but it's also true that uh, uh, Trump has used these issues to great advantage in terms of capturing the Republican nomination. The guy you were close to, Jeb Bush, with whom you worked uh, in Florida, uh, ran, and he he said he he said uh, uh, that immigration or bringing your children here legally or illegally is an act of love because people are want to mm-hmm. do for their families. He was destroyed for that right uh for that you the your party is not a pro-immigration party right now it's not and you know i think um i think you know in spanish we have a saying no hay peor ciego que el que no quiere ver there's no worse blind person that than he who does not want to see and i think um i think jeb didn't want to see it um or be part of it and i think I didn't want to see it. So I think, you know, I think Jeb, when Jeb ran, um, the the base had shifted. Uh, there was a change in the Republican base, and there were, what was it, 15, 16 others running, many of them seasoned politicians, veteran campaigners uh, who had been elected many, many times and run many campaigns who didn't sense it, didn't see it. And to his credit, Donald Trump somehow you know, this billionaire, brash uh, guy who lives in a gold-gilded, tacky as hell, if you ask me, uh, you know, you play, like gold, you skyscraper. Like no, I don't like gold toilets. <laughs> uh, somehow was able to, to sense it in a way that these, these other folks weren't. But he, he sensed it. He, there also was this mood. I mean, there was a growing mood within the Republican Party you saw, I mean, there are guys like Steve King and others in rural America who have made immigration. Kobach down in Kansas, who's now the Republican candidate for governor. But I always saw them as outliers. I, I mean, I've always seen Steve King as really one of the most, he's, he doesn't even reach the level of mediocre in Congress. There's a guy who's never actually passed anything. He's, you know, he's a Yahoo with badly coordinated clothes that, uh, whose only niche and whose only... Uh, reason of existing is to say bad things about immigrants who and who's never really gotten anything much accomplished in on immigration or any other issue, despite being in Congress now for you know double time, digits yeah. a long long time. I want to ask you about a couple of reasons in Florida in a minute, but right now you'd say the odds favor Democrats mm-hmm. taking the House. That Republican caucus 
in the House is going to be closer to a Steve King Republican than a than a uh, you know a, a Jeb Bush Republican. It it's going to make that caucus even more uh, right wing, more anti-immigrant. I think, more. I think you've seen we've seen in the in the last two years, certainly in the last eighteen months, and I would tell you. Uh, we've definitely seen it laid bare in front of us in the last 18 days, um, the Trumpification, further Trumpification of the Republican Party. You see it in a person like Lindsey Graham, who, who I've, I've known and has been a friend of mine mm-hmm. for many, many years. The way he's talking these days and the way he's acting, you see it even in somebody who I've considered a very mature and deliberative uh, senator like John Cornyn. You know, celebrating with champagne the um, the confirmation uh, of of the Kavanaugh appointment, um, and so yeah, I think I think um, you know it's getting harder and harder to deny that uh, there is a Trumpification of, Do you of think, the Republican speaking Party. Speaking of Lindsey Graham, who I know as well, uh, and you know him as an ally of your old uh, friend John McCain, um, do you think that? My interpretation is that Lindsey is looking ahead to 2020, understands that if he were the Lindsey Graham of 2016, that he could likely get a primary and lose a primary in South Carolina. So he's making a down payment on his continued uh, tenure in Congress. But I'm wondering if you have a different idea about what's going you know, on there. Because I haven't, he, he's, you know, he was the he was pro immigration reform, pro climate change, uh, a guy who, like McCain, was willing at times to uh, uh, reach across the aisle. And now he's become really one of the most vocal uh, defenders of Trump. I don't know what's going on with him. I, I intend to give him um, a call. Um, you know, for me, I need to separate the Lindsey Graham, who I've known as my friend and who yeah. I, I've liked as my friend, yes. who's fun as hell to hang out with and yes. drink with and yeah. joke around with and pal around with. And the the political person, um, which is hard to do when when that friend you like to pal around with is a U.S. senator. Um, you know what what you just said about making a down payment on the primary in the uh, for the primary twenty twenty. It's it cuts against the grain. The grain. It's something he has not I done before. You. This is a guy who took a huge hit in South Carolina for being a proponent of immigration reform. Yes. And he knew it, and he never shied away from it. He never scared. Uh, he was never scared of, of embracing it and tackling it and pushing it. And so um, that's not who he is. That's, that's not, not who, who he he's is. been. Uh, but uh, one wonders in the era of Trump whether this is what survival mode looks like. I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with him. Part of it is, um, you know, I remember, I mean, we remember, we have gone through several cycles now of where uh, Trump and Lindsey are uh, hooked at the at, at the hip and, and then when they're hating each other. You know, this is not, they go through, this is a very difficult and roller coaster emotional yeah. relationship. It's a bromance that's very weird. But, um, you know, I remember when he started trying to, get closer to Trump and palling around with Trump, playing golf with Trump and saying nice things about Trump, he had a very specific goal in mind, which was to try to pass immigration reform and get Trump to endorse and support an immigration deal. That frittered away, completely failed, fell on its face. 
and uh, they went through another cold period. Now they're back to warming up, and I, you know, I've got to wonder if there's something that he is strategically working towards. Maybe it's not firing Mueller. Maybe it's I don't know. I'm, yeah. This is just all speculation and, and me he playing. Has ton, he has me times, doing psychobabble. Yeah, I know. We don't really know. He he has at times intervened and counseled Trump not to fire Mueller, counseled him not to fire Sessions at least before the, although, you know, he warmed up to the notion that Sessions has to go, but not until after the midterm uh, elections and so on. I, I don't know what the long game is, but it is a stark departure for him uh, in some ways to to play the role that he's playing. You I may- also think he was genuinely irritated. Um, and like I said, I haven't spoken to Lindsay and I'm, you know, all this is speculation, but I... I I remember when Sonia Sotomayor was getting confirmed, was up for her promise, He voted for her. And I remember calling him and mm-hmm. asking him. I called him. I called John McCain. I called Mel Martinez. Mel Martinez and uh, Lindsay voted for her. McCain did not. And so I, I do think, you know, I do think he's um, upset at, at the way this process has played out. Look, this process is horrible. Yeah. It's become uh, ridiculously ideological and where people have made up their minds for the most part yeah even before the yeah. nominee has uh, you know yeah. uttered, you, you know uh, you get into these hello. discussions and you're i absolutely agree with that you get into these discussions uh, though and then you get into sort of the biblical where did it all begin kind of right. thing started with bork and then this and then that uh you know a lot of people uh democrats were really really offended when mcconnell blockaded uh, Merrick Garland for a year, and then shoved Kavanaugh through here uh, before the midterms, uh, and now says, "Well, if I if if Trump has a pick in the final uh, year, you know, we'll probably." And that is offensive. The the hypocrisy of it and the inconsistency and the, you know trying to find loopholes in order to make an argument and saying, "Well, you know, it's one thing if it's the election year where." But now I'm not only talking about an election year. I'm only talking about an election year when the party that's not the party of the president is in power in the Senate. I mean, right. it's getting more and more Well, look, the bottom line is raw, hard politics. And he has, as you know, because you travel in these circles, he's made himself a—he was despised by the Republican right who thought about of him as the ultimate swamp creature. He's now certified his— his credentials with that group. Uh, Lindsey was despised through. by the Republican right. Mitch McConnell yeah. was despised. Right. They tried to take him down. Right. There were there was active campaigning right. to beat uh, not anymore McConnell. though not- because be, be, because uh, because of this. I will tell you this: um, one of the reasons that Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland in 2016 was because. Garland was someone who was widely admired by both Republicans and Democrats, uh, and was a uh, uh, you know a center right, a center left, uh, uh, viewed as a center left kind of legal uh, thinker, and uh, he wanted someone who would be broadly acceptable. I think what we're missing now is that. And it's true in our politics generally. I mean, we are in this zero-sum game. It's either one way or another right. way, and the country's not really there. But um, what you know, if you had a filibuster, then presidents would have to, uh, which is now eliminated. Uh, the advantage of that is presidents had to present mm-hmm. candidates who would at least garner some support on the other side, and it impacted on who. 
they would appoint. So look, um, when they got rid of the sixty vote threshold yeah. uh, in order to be able to advance well, then, cloture, pass yeah. cloture, uh, that means that you no longer have to right. present a nominee who and passes muster. This is the direction all of our politics is going in. This kind of winner take all. Uh, but this, you know, this process has been this process has been, I think. Uh, Terrible in so many fronts, the Kavanaugh process I'm talking about. And one of the fronts that has been terrible on above and beyond the the entire sexual assault thing, which has been horrific, is uh, how it revealed the undeniable dysfunction in Congress. I, I, I can't remember a time in my recent lifetime when colleagues um, who've sat together and served together on this committee for many, many years, some of them were, you know, were so openly yeah, hostile brutal, brutal. and angry to each other. Yeah, yeah. You were, uh, you've, you, in your tweets and in your public comments, you were very supportive of, uh, of Dr. Ford. Uh, how do you think she was treated in this process? Uh, awful. Look, I, 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 um, I was supportive of Kavanaugh initially because the way I feel about it, a precedent, uh, gets very you know wide leeway in finding somebody that meets their ideology. When it comes to things like ideology, race, gender, age, all of those things are entirely up to the precedent. And um and elections have consequences. Yeah. And if, you know, if a uh, Democrat gets picked, Republicans should live with the fact that it's going to be somebody that's of a different ideology. And if uh, Republicans get elected, Democrats should live with the fact that it's going to be somebody of different ideology. But there are some things that are not up to the president or should not be up to the president that are not optional. Moral fitness, judicial independence, uh, judicial character and having the, the temperament necessary and uh, you know, being a, a basic decent person, I thought this 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 was a particularly difficult case because these were things uh, alleged against uh, Judge Kavanaugh that had not happened in the last thirty months; that they had happened thirty five years ago. So, it, but the things he said about it were contemporary. Were in the last three weeks, and right. I, you know, so I initially uh, thought, okay, this guy seems like a like a decent guy. He certainly seems to have the intellect. Uh, and he seemed, at first blush, to have the uh, moral fitness and the judicial temperament and judicial independence. But in these last, in the last hearing, uh, I just found that. Uh, well, you know what happened? They went all of them. He and I think that she was very, very compelling. It after and the break between and, and the two of them. Republicans had to come up with these, you know. Re- Ridiculous machinations well, they, they and verbal tribal. acrobatics they went tribal. to try to say, we believe Wait. her, but we believe him. So the only way we can justify and explain that is by saying, yes, we believe her, but she was confused about her, her accusers. Really what they that did was, was so they, they really didn't ridiculous. want to talk about her at all. They wanted to say uh, the real issue here isn't what she said or what he said. It's how her story was leaked by the Democrats and the and the tech and and what that says about them. And they went tribal. Uh, you I, know. I, I would like to know. I what mean, happened I, I agree with that. I, th- I, I, I totally mean, I, agree I think with that. that there has been a a violation of the you know process here. And I would like to know what exactly happened there and yeah, how agree. it happened. Well, I guarantee at this you, point, it's post facto is not going no, to but, make a difference. But, they but I'd like to know. To, they, the 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 uh, uh, 
uh, majority leader I'm, says I'm he a, wants to look into it. And I, you know, I'm I'm as I'm as um, as offended and upset at the at the um, aftermath as I am by the process itself, in the sense that you know how she was treated at that hearing, um, all the comments that were made afterwards about. Uh, you know, believing her, but she was confused. Poor little woman, you know, she can't keep track of who her abuser was. Well, the but president now, kind of abandoned all of that when at the Kavanaugh when, when installation. He, well, and when he mocked her right. uh, at that rally. But this this spiking of the football that has been going on since that confirmation by the president and by his allies in the Senate and outside of government has... Um, totally discounted the pain and trauma out there. This is a confirmation process that broke the country. Look, I thought I thought Kavanaugh should have withdrawn. I thought he should have withdrawn because Donald Trump was never going to get rid of him, and the, and the Republicans were never going to give up on him. And I think that he puts into, you know, I think he's what he's doing to the integrity of the court, I, which is something which is an institution that, that had deep respect in America, which is more than you can say for Congress or the presidency right now. Uh, I think what he's doing to the integrity of the court, I think the entire message that it sent to victims of sexual assault was terrible. And for that, I thought he should have withdrawn. I think he should have withdrawn for his own family. This is not over. If he thinks that because he's going to be wearing a black robe and be called justice of the Supreme Court, it's over. It's not. His obituary is going to say he got confirmed by the narrowest margin in history because he was accused of sexual assault and, you know, in a confirmation process that deeply divided the country. And he's going into that court with over 50 percent of America believing that he lied and that he's disqualified to be in that court. And so for his own sake, for his family's sake, this is going to continue chasing them in the environment that we're living now. And I thought Donald Trump should appoint another and I assume would appoint another conservative who the Democrats should have said we're going to, you know, mm-hmm. quickly move on on the confirmation process. None of that happened. It was for naught. But what was not for naught was Christine Ford's testimony and how it opened up the floodgates and it gave women all around the country and in the world courage to come out and speak, uh, share their, their pain, share the stories of shame that they had kept silence for so many decades. It's a watershed moment. Yeah. This is another Harvey Weinstein moment where women have found their voice, where women have lost, women and some men, because it's always, you know, we always call it women, but there's some men who are also victims. And I, I think uh, it's going to change the country. We have had, we've had conversations around dinner tables and around TV panelist tables and around the water cooler and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I have friends who've got kids in fancy prep schools like the ones that Christine Ford and, um, and Judge Kavanaugh and I attended who are telling me that those schools are spending a lot of time talking about consent and teaching the students, the young students, what consent means. So I, I, I hope that these conversations and this level of awareness that we have had is, is a positive thing that moves us forward. What about the argument the president's been making in the last week uh, that this is a terrible time to be a young man, that men are accused and presumed guilty? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I ask you without prejudice, 
where I have a prejudice and it's not on that side of the equation, although we still are sorting through how to deal with uh, some of this, how to get to the truth of these things, because the nature of these kinds of assaults are that there, although in this case she said there was a witness who was never actually questioned by the Senate a Judiciary Committee, but the nature of these things are uh, many of them come down to a he said, a she said sort of thing. But I thought it was kind of a peculiar argument for him to be making in the moment. You know, you know he is so, Trump is so savvy uh, at building a narrative and spinning uh, it to his favor. You know, the narrative now is that the um, the men are the victims. Of course, he's saying this, you talk about saying it without prejudice. He's saying it with yeah. prejudice as somebody who's got over 15 credible right. accusations of sexual right. assault against him. Uh, but also, it's about energizing the Republican base, making them uh, yeah. as angry as and the do Democrats are. you think it's are. done that? Oh, I think there's a lot of Republicans who are very angry at how the process went through. I can, you know, I've look, I, I've got friends who thought this was unfair, who are all ginned up against Abinadi and against Feinstein, and you know, and I'm like, well, what the hell does that have to do with Christine Blasey Ford? Can we focus on, you know, the issue at hand? What, what does that have to do with judicial temperament? What does that have to do with judicial independence? Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, Republicans who voted for Donald Trump precisely because he promised a conservative court. He promised that, you know, one of the smartest things Trump did in that entire election was bring out that list of yeah. pre-approved jurists. And he had to because uh, he you was and I have not trusted by Who, who the held their nose right. and voted for him, uh, telling us, you know, under their breath that they couldn't stand him, that he they they were repelled by him, but they were voting for him because mm-hmm. of the Supreme Court. And so he's here's delivered. the question. Now that there, there are two justices on the Supreme Court, um, Kavanaugh wasn't on the original list, but he's been blessed by the Federalist Society, which is the generator of right. lists for the right. Uh, will that translate into uh, will that translate into votes in on November sixth? You know, in my experience, people don't come out uh, because they're happy with what happened. They generally come out because they're not. But uh, Senator McConnell was, I would have to describe him as uh, giddy, if you can imagine what a giddy Mitch McConnell looks like on Sunday. Uh, it looks just as it's, it looks. It, it, it looks like the ungiddy uh, Mitch <laughs> yeah, exactly. McConnell. Giddy and ungiddy are. But but in any case, he he said, you know the the. Democrats have done what we couldn't do for ourselves. They've energized our base and so on. Do you expect that on November 6th, a month from now, that this will be, we'll look back and say that was a watershed event in this campaign? And if so, will it be uh, women and others who were offended by what happened here coming out because they're angry about the result? Or will it be uh, Republican or conservative voters who uh, appreciate the appointment and are mad at Democrats for the process? I don't know. I don't know. And I think anybody that tells you, look, all the polls are saying that the gap with women is uh, historical and getting larger by the day with everything. The question is whether you max out on that at some Uh, point. Well, the question is whether you max out and the question is whether they turn out. Right. You know, I look, I think there's so many people that have a reason to be angry uh, for the last 18 months, right? I mean, I you know, is every Puerto Rican that has moved to the mainland, are they registering to vote? And are they, like, they going to come out? Because if they do, they can make a difference 
in some states and in some races. Do you think races. that'll be a, a difference in Florida? It certainly could be. I would love for the story coming out of Florida in, uh, you know, second week of November to be, it was the Puerto Ricans that moved to central Florida that made the difference in some of these statewide races. Because, you know, for me, there's no doubt that the response to Puerto Rico was lesser and slower than the response to mm -hmm. Florida and to Texas. And Puerto Rico needed it more. And we knew Puerto Rico needed it more. We knew before the hurricane that Puerto Rico needed it more. And the only reason in my head that I can uh, come up with is that they don't have electoral votes. They don't vote right. for precedent. I think that if they want to be taken seriously, and I think if they want to be respected, they've got to flex that political muscle. They may not be able to do it in Puerto Rico, but they certainly can do it in Florida. You know, the thing about the thing about Trump that's uh, interesting to me is he compounds in certain ways his own problem by going to Puerto Rico and talking about and continuing to this day to talk about what a great job has been done there. You know, everyone's if, imagine if he were to say, "I'm mad at I'm mad that we didn't do better." And we're going to do better. It's just not within his range of uh, his range of possibilities to acknowledge that this was less than good. It's just like it's not within his range of possibilities to say that, uh, yeah, maybe some good things were done in the economy before I got here, and I'm building on that. None of that. It's all this sort of, um, you know, uh, trumped up, if I can say, uh, you know, narrative about his his uh you know uh well, his thought, excellence you know, it's a, it's on a combination it every... of three things right it's um narcissism absolute narcissism everything every story has got to be about him it's got to be a comparison with every other president and even if it is a complete fabricated lie he will compare it and he will say give himself superlatives. the greatest ever the greatest ever so it's it's narcissism it is lack of human empathy, just basic human empathy. And uh, it's, you know, it's an incredible uh, lack of humility. I mean, the guy has zero humility. I, you know, I keep thinking back to Katrina when uh, the response by the Bush administration was abominable mm -hmm. the first few days. But, you know, I also know that George W. Bush acknowledged it, uh, regretted it has spent years trying to make up for it, mm -hmm. worked with people across the aisle, worked with people from Louisiana, worked with our friend Donna Brazil, for example, mm -hmm. and called her up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's looking at the results and having the humility of saying, you know, we could have done better. And it's important because we're going to keep having hurricanes. Right. And, and, and it's important to have learned the fact that, uh, that George W. Bush immediately replaced "Quote unquote brownie yes. for a seasoned professional made a difference. But you know, after having that. It, having that historical example uh, really should. Uh, if you if you were looking at this rationally, you'd say, I don't want to make that same mistake, and I'm going to very quickly uh, accept uh, accountability, responsibility. I'm not going to. But you're you're right. I mean, all those things you said about the president are true. I think the other is. The flip side of all that narcissism is insecurity, and you know he he being accountable and saying we made a mistake, we could have done better, uh, is something that he just can't. What he the hell is he insecure about? Having been born rich, having been born white, 
having been born, you know, uh, g- given hundreds well, so of millions of dollars by his daddy? I mean, what what is you know there what? It's an interesting to be question, insecure Anna. about? It's, question, it's an interesting question. If I were going to engage in psychobabble, uh-huh. and what the hell we're here, so I'm going to. Uh, you got it. Maybe uh, some of those things are actually uh, one of the reasons that he is insecure. He's a guy who. You know, in New York, was never accepted by, you know, right. the elites, the business elites, the the social elites. Yeah, they saw him as a rube, as a con job. Well, as a yeah, as a used car salesman, none of them would do business with him. Um, and in a sense, he's wreaking his revenge, you know. But I still think he, in some ways, he wants that approbation, and he, you know. The, you you know one of his you you said he has a, a genius for this narrative. I mean, the way he is treated by elites uh, is something that he's actually turned into his political advantage because there are a lot of people in this country who feel disrespected by elites who 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 look who who feel like they're looked down upon, and he's kind of rallied those people in a kind of grand uh, uh, exercise in in resentment. And it's become a powerful uh, political force. And, and in certain ways, they're not wrong out there that, I mean, there is a, I mean, sometimes we look at these issues through the prism of New York City and Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., and really lose touch with the lives of people out there. And, uh, you know, my, my question is, is he making those lives better? But he did identify the fact that those folks feel like they've been disrupted in terms right. of their e- economic chances, disrespected by elites. And I think he himself has lived a life where he's wanted the approbation of elites, but he hasn't gotten it. And that's part of his political gestalt, you know, a war on the elites. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll go call every elite I know and ask them to please be nice to him and see if we can, you know, well, you know fulfill what Lindsey his Graham insecurity. Said, Lindsey Graham said, "You want all Donald Trump isn't complicated. All you have to do is be nice to him, and he'll be nice to you. And if you're not nice to him, he won't be nice to you." Um, which you know is seems a little childlike, but uh, but but it seems also to be true. If people say nice things about him, look at Kim Jong Un. Right you know, uh, is now uh, fully embraced the world's worst human rights uh, violator. You, you have got to have thought to yourself when, when, uh, when he said at that rally that he and Kim Jong-un fell in love. You have got to have been thinking to yourself, my God, if Barack Obama had ever said anything like that, he would have been burned in effigy. Without the co- next well, there day. are a lot of things that Trump does that, uh, that would go uh, in that category, you know, if he had if he had, I, I remember. Look, I remember when um, when Obama did the uh, reversal of the Cuba policy yes. and went down to Cuba, took in that baseball game, sitting next to Raúl Castro eating um, eating popcorn. I was I was very mad. I was very angry. I thought, you know, what are we doing? Why are we giving such legitimacy to a murderous dictator? And most Republicans. Yeah. I'm so old, David. I actually remember when Republicans were against communist murderous dictators. And now all of a sudden, I, you know, I see them, the same people who were angry at Obama for sitting with Raul Castro, I see them justifying and explaining, coddling and, you know, be, being a, an enabler you know of Putin the, you know and the, Kim you know, Jong-un. Yeah, yeah. And, I, mean, I, I, I hear you. I agree with you. And this is something that uh, uh, I'm sure really, really angered uh, Senator McCain in his final, in his final year years because uh, 
he felt so strongly on these issues. I will say this um, in defense of the president that I work for. You you may not have liked, and they may not have liked, that he sat at a baseball game with Raul Castro. But on that same trip, he also stood on a platform and uh, challenged Raul Castro on uh, on human rights. Mm-hmm. And Castro was very angry about it. Uh, so, you know, I actually don't... I think it's better that we're talking to North Korea than not talking to them. Uh, but what we shouldn't do is ignore... Uh, the, you know the fact that uh, Kim Jong Un is a is a brutal uh, dictator, and uh, for Trump to whitewash that and now uh, use superlatives to describe this guy is mind-boggling. And you're right, the fact that there aren't more uh, Republicans who are willing to step uh, step up and say that's wrong. I mean, Lindsey Graham would have been the first person. Uh, to uh, to lead that charge, and he may have m- offered some muted criticism uh, of that, but uh, n- you know, not to the degree that he would have certainly if Barack Obama had said that. Uh, talk to me about Senator McCain. I know mm. that that uh, you know he was the first guy I did. I do a version of this podcast on I CNN. Remember. He was the first show uh, I did, and it was. Um, and he also came to the Institute of Politics, uh, even though I had been pretty instrumental in the campaign that defeated him in 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, we came to be friends. And I, uh, I admire him. I didn't agree with him all the time. Uh, but, uh, but there was so much about him that I admired. And I found that whole uh, weekend of his, that week, really, that he orchestrated uh, of his, uh, of his, after his death, culminating in that service in Washington to be uh, an extraordinary thing. But I also, it made me sad because everyone got together and sort of locked arms for a few hours. That was the Saturday before the Kavanaugh hearings began. Right. And then Monday, you know, everybody was talking on Saturday, well, maybe this is a new beginning. Maybe John McCain has sparked a sense of camaraderie that was missing, rekindled our sense of common purpose and so on and so forth. Um, didn't happen. John McCain, look, um, he was extraordinary. He, he really was an extraordinary force, an extraordinary personal story. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, who came from a tradition of service to country and putting country first and lived his entire life that way. He volunteered to go into the service at 17, had to get his mom to sign off on it. Um, you know, and this is a guy who was... Everything we just said that uh, Trump is or is not, McCain was the opposite. He is. He was humble. He did have the humility to recognize when he had made mistakes, whether it was uh, Martin Luther King or whether it was, you know, something he may have said to a friend that might have offended them. Um, you know, he which had, happened more than once. Oh, he had. Oh, it happened to me. Yeah, he had a. He, uh, he had a temper on him. Oh, I listen. One night. Um, must have been about, I don't know, four years ago or so. We were having dinner in Washington. John McCain, Cindy, his wife, and Lindsey Graham and myself. And I made some sort of, you know, snarky Anna Navarro comment about uh, Sarah Palin. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't anything very significant, but it was snarky. And he got incredibly angry at me because he always felt this level of... Um, you know, John was always that Navy pilot. He was always the yes, ma'am. 
Yes, sir. He had this chivalry about him, this old-fashioned chivalry, and he always felt somewhat protective. He always felt a little bad that he had done this to Sarah Palin and put her in this position Although where she would be mocked and where she he, would... He, he acknowledged that he wished he hadn't have... That he wished he had picked Joe Lieberman. He, but, you know, it was two different things. He didn't say he wished he hadn't picked Palin. He said he wished he had picked Joe Lieberman. And I've you only get to one Mark, vice president. You right. Know. Well, yeah. I know you're a lawyer, so you've studied this. <laughs> but I spoke to, you know, I've having had this experience with John and spoken, uh, then I spoke to Mark Salter, his co-writer, yes. co-author in Great this book. Guy. They are two different things in, in John's mind, and, and Mark tried to clarify that. But so we were having dinner, and I made some snark comment about um, Sarah Palin, and he got livid at me. I'm talking red in the face, you know, punching the, the table, uh, got up to leave livid uh, at me. Cindy and Lindsay were sitting there like statues not moving. And I kept saying to John, you've got to come down and you've got to stop this. And what are you doing? You and I love each other. What are you doing? Anyways, we had, we know, we had it out. It was, it was a scene. It was ugly. But I can tell you, he spent days after that calling me and, and apologizing for, for the outburst. But it was, it was, you know, and this is U.S. Senator John McCain. I was, you know, I was some nothing. And here he was, but I was his friend who had worked with him and with whom he had a relationship. And he treated everybody like that. When we campaigned, he he traveled with a collection of friends that went from, you know, people that he had been in prison with and people that he had been in the Navy with. Some of them were poor. Some of them were Hispanic. Some of them were very wealthy to, you know, friends he had made along the way. He had an entourage of close personal friends that he fed off. He liked people. He liked town halls. He liked coming to things like the IOP and listening from students. He, um, you know, he enjoyed human interaction. Including he, interaction with his opponents. Uh, oh, God. You know, he... Uh, he had a sense of humor. Yeah. You know, he could get angry. Look, he had normal human emotions, right? He could get angry. He could get sad. He could... One Another time that I, you know, I remember um, we were... This was probably 2007, so it was in the run-up to 2008, and he was speaking at a banquet in Washington for the, I want to, I think it was the National Immigration Forum or some sort of immigration organization, and he gave a, a speech, beautiful, poignant speech about immigration and the people that crossed the border and how they had been found dead, and he was, you know, describing them one by one. It was a very, very touching, heartbreaking speech, and at some point, he got very angry about what was happening, you know, in the immigration and not happening, and he punched the podium, and he said, damn it, this is not who we are. America, this is not who we are. He came back to the table where his mom, who was, you know, a spry 95 yes. back then, was sitting, and she looked at him very properly and said, now, Johnny, we didn't teach you in our house to speak that way. I'm going <laughs> to wash your mouth out with soap. And he looked down at her, you know, U.S. Senator John McCain, sorry, mom. <laughs> and so, you know, he just had this, um, he was just such a, you know, he was such a good friend. I think he was a good American. He was a good son. He was a good father. He was uh, a good person. He was, John McCain was a good person. And Are you confident that he obviously constructed that mm, final week yeah. of memorials uh, as much for uh, the country as for him and uh, to to try and prod people to think about each other differently in our political process and return to the 
the days that he remembered. Um, wh- what's your level of confidence that that's going to happen or happen anytime soon? Zero. I mean, we're look. We are worse. Uh, what John McCain was laid to rest. The country laid John McCain to rest. What the week before Labor Day. Uh, and it's it's been a little bit over a month, and we are worse today than we were then. So I I um I don't know what it's going to take, but it's 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 got to happen at some point because we can't continue in the trend line that we are we're going, where it's further and further polarization and tribalism and partisanship and you know I mean and and these culture wars which worry me so much. You know where whether it's Charlottesville or Kaepernick or the anthem or speaking Spanish or, you know, whatever, um, whatever it is that he invents that day. A lot of times with the uh, flames being fanned by the Russians, you know, through social media campaigns, which is something that that terrifies me, frankly, uh, it's got to stop. I mean, it's it's there, you know, at some point, something's going to happen that brings us together because we cannot continue uh, this way. One of the things that gives me, you know, some pause and gives me some hope, I think one person is capable of making change. And we've seen it with Trump. I think one person is capable of making change for the worse. I think he has changed the Republican Party. I think he has changed the presidency. I think he has changed the country all for the worse. But I also think there's people out there who can change for the better and make things better and do it quickly. That's what a, a real leader can do. And I'm, you know, I'm hoping that there's one out there. God, I just hope it's in my lifetime. And while like, you know, while I'm still eating solid food. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you've got some time there. So uh, I hope it's uh, sooner than that. Me too. Since uh, when you, when you Stop eating solid food. I think we got many, many years to go there. And one thing I know is that whatever happens over that period of time that you are going to be front and center and uh, sharing your insights and your views in your own inimitable fashion, which, um, which is great, which lets you be heard. In a way that few others are. So it's well, thank you. always and a pleasure. I got to tell you. you, I'm so proud of what you've built here. I'm so proud of what you're doing. Of, you know, in this in this environment of partisanship and tribalism, as we just discussed, of you trying to bring different sides and exposing uh, students. This new generation is a hope. Yeah, I agree with the, you. This new I generation go home is a hope. Every day. And uh, and I think it it, it energizes uh, people. It's part of why I like coming to things. Uh, in colleges, because it's it's what gives me hope. So thank you for everything we'll you're doing. We'll come back many times. On, you know, in the fall or in the spring. <laughs> yes. Well, I told you we'll provide warm days for you whenever you come. Ana Navarro, great to be with thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.